Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to Dan 1132. My name is Jim Wittiving, and one more special episode. This is episode 42 of Dan 1132. And last week, we had on with us uh, Tim, Pastor Tim Shooten from the Canadian Reformed Church in Prince George. And this week, we have another special guest, and that is Pastor Nathan Zeckfeld from the United Reformed Church in Prince Edward Island. What city? Uh, right near Charlottetown. Right near Charlottetown in Prince Edward oh. Island. And so we're, I'm very happy to have uh, Pastor Nathan on. Uh, with me and to talk specifically about the current situation that we find ourselves in, in regard and in the context of the Reformed Confessions. So, uh, Nathan, welcome. It's nice to have you. Uh, Maybe we could just start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I I went to college at New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho. Um, in between college and seminary, I worked for a year in Alberta. Um, I went to the Canadian Reformed Theological Seminary for four years. About halfway through seminary, I met my wife, Ashley, who's uh, from BC, actually from Langley, British Columbia, uh, from a Canadian Reformed Church out there. And um, yeah, I grew up in Toronto, grew up in a mission field. My father was uh, or is still a missionary to Sikhs and Hindus in the city of Toronto. Okay. And you've been a pastor for how long? I've been a pastor now for, uh, I've been working out here in Prince Edward Island for two and a half years now. All right. So you're, uh, you're, you're still, still fresh and, uh, and, and full of vim and vigor. Yes. Yeah. I'd like to think so. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Well, the reason why I asked Nathan to come on with me is because, and and this is very similar to what, uh, what I said last week about uh, pastor Tim, uh, is that I've read some things online and I've had conversations with Nathan. I've never actually met you personally, uh, but we've talked online and we've had conversations and uh, I've read things that uh, Nathan has written. He also hosts a blog and he writes regularly for that. What's the what's the name of your blog? Uh, so the name of the blog is Irrelevant. I believe that the link is irrelevantmag.wordpress.com. All right, there we go. The Irrelevant Mag. So I, I assume that that irrelevant is ironic. Yeah, it's a pun off of relevant. There Thanks. we go. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> All right. So I had read I had read some things that Nathan had written about specifically the topic that we're going to address today, and that is the Reformed Confessions and how the Reformed Confessions apply in our current situation. And so obviously, uh, speaking of that, for the past two years, we've been under uh, various degrees of uh, states of exception in various parts of our country, and that's different from province, province to province, and also nationally. And that's affected our personal lives, it's affected our worship, it's affected our work, it's affected our schooling, in, it, it's affected all of our lives, basically, every, every aspect of our lives, with the, the governing states of exception that have resulted from the COVID-19 pandemic. So that has that that really is the what uh, what I want to talk about, what we want to talk about, uh, and specifically how our Reformed confessions uh, can teach us and help us in how to deal with the situation. In terms of in three areas in particular, first of all, the mandates and the lockdowns that uh, that we've all experienced in Canada and and in many other countries as well. I know there's listeners and people watching from other countries as well, uh, particularly the United States. Uh, also, and in, in the second place, the mandates that have restricted or closed uh, public corporate worship specifically. And then thirdly, the issue of civil disobedience and peaceful protest. How uh, should we as Christians think about that? And how should we think about our obedience to the uh, the governing authorities in the light of the Reformed Confessions, and those are those are really the 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 three issues that I want to touch on. And first of all, but first of all, I'm gonna I'm gonna play this video, this video clip, uh, and it's a video clip of a group of Christians that are gathered on Parliament Hill, and they were gathered on Saturday, uh, and here is what they were doing. Save them, Bobby, have they all 
acceptable for Christians? Can we as Christians in good conscience uh, participate in this kind of activity? And so there's a whole number of issues that, that we need to discuss and that we need to uh, get into in more depth. And, and uh, so I wanted to start off, first of all, with the issue of mandates and lockdowns in general and how our churches should uh, respond to them. And, and I'm thinking about the way that these mandates have been implemented and 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 how they've affected us in our general life, not just in terms of worship, but but generally. So do you have any thoughts on that, Nathan? Yeah, so how the mandates have affected our lives more generally. So when we when we look through the scriptures, I would say that, that there's something the most important thing is to consider exactly what God's law is saying with a background of what is inherent to um, the way God has created the world, which would be natural law. Um, you can find some descriptions of natural law in Genesis 1 to 3. Um, so when I look at our confessions, especially the Heidelberg Catechism, the third section um, describes our service to God. And our service to God, of course, is summarized by the Ten Commandments and then the Lord's Prayer. And in the Ten Commandments, um, we see various uh, positive laws or commands laid out for our lives. So, for example, in the Fourth Commandment, we're called to work six days and rest the seventh. In the Fifth Commandment, we're called to honor our father and our mother. Um, in the Ninth Commandment, we're called not to lie um, and to speak the truth honestly and openly. So as we see a lot of these uh, cultural forces at work today, I, I think there's a number of points where um, lockdowns, which by the way have um, in, in the current form that they've been used in the 21st century, they've never been used to that degree ever in history before. So we're dealing with uh, unprecedented realities and uh, we're called to 
think in biblical ways and uh, also think in terms of how our confessions call us to respond. So, for example, um, people were made not to work or told to stay home and isolate for long periods of time. But God calls us to work six days a week and rest and worship on the seventh. Um, people have been hindered from visiting their parents and their grandparents in old age homes. And yet there's a certain honor that's required of the elderly, um, wherein we provide for them physically, but also spiritually and emotionally as well. Um, so I think of those two things as, as two examples of where the lockdowns that have happened over this last year clash with our responsibilities towards God and towards our neighbor. Right. I, I, I can see exactly where you're coming from. And I know from personal experience, uh, my, my father passed away uh, just uh, over a year ago. And uh, we were only allowed to have 10 people at his funeral. And uh, his grandkids had to sit in the car well, he, he was laid to rest while his body was laid to rest. So this was, this was something where we were forbidden from grieving with those who grieve. We were also being forbidden from celebrating with those who celebrate and uh, rejoicing with those who rejoice. And I've, I've looked at it in, in relation to the, the one another in commands of scripture that we need to love one another, care for one another, encourage one another, exhort one another. And what all of these mandates have done is to prevent us from fulfilling these positive commands of scripture. And I think when you, when you mentioned the Heidelberg Catechism and what our Heidelberg Catechism says about obedience to the law of God, it explains the commandments in those ways. So it doesn't just, you know, thou shalt not kill is not simply a negative commandment. There's a positive side to that as well. And, and with all of the commandments, it's like that. Yeah. So, for example, uh, the sixth commandment has often been brought up in the context of this current crisis. Um, but the question is, um, how far does the sixth commandment actually apply to times of pandemic and also to the spread of a virus? Um, I, I would argue that um, many people have taken the Sixth Commandment much farther than it was intended to go. Um, since uh, even during times of pandemic, we're, we're still commanded to show that, that honor for the elderly and also to grieve with family members um, during times of funeral and rejoice with family members during times of weddings, uh, etc. <laughs> right. Right, exactly, exactly. So there's there's one one aspect where um, where our reformed confessions actually speak to these issues, and where we need to apply them in how we respond and how we how we consider these mandates and and whether we consider them as being positive or 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 whether we choose to to follow them in that way. Yes. Yeah. So um, maybe we're not always being commanded to being uh, to be disobedient to God, but we're definitely hindered from our obedience to God in very uh, specific and concrete ways. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So so a hindering of the uh, hindering us, preventing us from doing the things that we should be doing. Also, in terms of, of things like, I was also thinking of things like uh, fellowship, like the, you know, talking about the one anothering commands in the New Testament, uh, that, that, you know, to encourage and admonish and exhort all of those kinds of, of activities that we're called as Christians to actively participate in, to gather together, uh, and not just for Sunday worship, but for things like Bible studies, things like fellowship meals, things, uh, social events, all of those things which are important aspects of the Christian life, those have also been hindered and seriously hindered uh, over the past couple of years. Yeah, so I guess we'll be discussing worship a little bit more later, but within the biblical command to worship and within biblical examples of worship, so for example, Acts 2, the fellowship of the saints 
and the embodied fellowship of the saints breaking bread together is very much an aspect of the life of the church. Um, I believe Hebrews 10 verse 24 to 25, it commands not to forsake meeting together. And obviously the worship of God is, is the, um, of the highest importance in that meeting together. But Hebrews 10 verse 24 to 25 very specifically mentions so that you can encourage one another and spur one another onwards to yes. loving good works. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's very integral to um, who we are as a church. Yeah, yeah. And I, th- I think of that in, in covenantal terms. You know, as, as, reformed, as reformed Christians, we, are, we, we very much emphasize covenant, the covenant, the theology of the covenant, living in covenant. Uh, so we speak a lot about covenant and we teach a lot about covenant. Uh, we also need to live covenantally. And that covenantal living has that, it's not just, it's not just vertical. It's not just us and God. And we emphasize the fact that our Christian life is not just an individual relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, but it's a communal corporate relationship. And I think that's something that's really important for us to, to, uh, to maintain, obviously, and to argue vociferously uh, in favor of as something that it, it's, you can't live a Lone Ranger Christian life. Yeah, so uh, Christ, Christ obviously saves us as individuals, but he also buys for himself a bride who he's perfecting, and he perfects us together as one. So the assembly, the coming together of God's people, reflects our unity, at least visibly within this world, our right. unity in Christ. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that's, that's in the area, the broader area, you know, we, we say that all of life is worship. So really, all of this has to do with worship. But at the same time, it has to do with the broader area outside of and beyond the, the four walls of the church and our corporate gatherings. But, but now I also want to talk about the, the, the corporate gatherings. And that's, I, I think, where we have a lot to, to, uh, to teach us in the, the Belgian Confession in particular. Uh, but in the in the Reformed confessions in general. So I want to talk about corporate worship. So mandates obviously have restricted and continue to restrict worship. So at times, worship was shut down completely. So perhaps there were a few people allowed in the building along with the pastor. Uh, uh, perhaps there were restrictions of 10% or, or now in the northern part of BC, worship was restricted to 50%. Uh, if they're not uh, asking for a vaccine passport. And then, of course, there's also the, uh, the possibility of that vaccine passport being instituted in worship in general. Uh, so that's, that's, that's still, I mean, we've seen provinces lessening restrictions now. Uh, so, but from province to province, again, it's varying. So this is where a lot of the focus has been, obviously. In, in our uh, Reformed churches. And I know there's people watching who are not uh, part of Reformed churches, but just, just to, actually, I, and I should have started with this, to, to let you know, we're going to be talking about the, and on the basis of the three forms of unity, which are our confessional standards. So the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the Canons of Dort. These are the confessional standards of the, the Reformed churches. And we view these confessional standards as accurate reflections and uh, summaries, we could say, of the doctrine of God's word. And for us, for uh, Pastor uh, Nathan, for myself, we subscribe to these documents and we make, a, we make an oath not to teach anything that will contradict uh, these faithful uh, distillations of the reformed faith as reformed pastors right so that's that's something very important to uh to emphasize uh for those who, who may not know uh so speaking about that what is it is it legitimate to forbid members for a uh, a consistory uh, or a council of a church to uh prevent members from gathering together for worship first of all so I would, uh, I would definitely argue 
no, and I'll begin by arguing from the confessions, but I think that this could also be proved further by biblical passages such as Hebrews 10, verse 24 to 25. Right. Um, but here in the Heidelberg Catechism, if you look at Lord's Day 39, um, sorry, 38, what is God's will for you in the fourth commandment? So this is the command to honor the Lord's Day. First, that the gospel ministry and schools for it be maintained, and that especially on that festive day of rest, I diligently attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to the Lord publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. So that's an explanation of the centrality of worship um, to obeying that fourth commandment. And so many members throughout this crisis have expressed that their conscience bound to attend the worship of God and to diligently attend the assembly of God's people. Right. Uh, so, but I'm going to, I'm going to play the, uh, the devil's advocate, so to speak. But what if we're in a crisis situation it's an, and a public health crisis? Uh, doesn't doesn't the the consistory have the duty to protect the health of its members by by preventing them from gathering together? I would argue from the Belgian confession that the first and foremost duty of the consistory is to uh, ensure that the gospel ministry is being maintained, that the sacraments are being administered. Um, there may come a time where for very short periods of time, uh, worship cannot happen. So for example, let's say everybody in your church is sick with COVID, then you, pr you probably are not going to be able to gather together as a church for a given Sunday or maybe for two or three Sundays in a row. Um, and yet I would, I would argue along with Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper uh, lived during the time of the Spanish flu, which was in many ways more extreme than the uh, coronavirus that we're seeing. And he argued that the churches still must continue to come before God because in times like this, in times of war, in times of pestilence, God is calling his people to come before him, to repent, to return to him. And so, uh, for example, he, he used the example of, I believe it's Micah 6 verse 9, hear the rod and of him who has appointed it. Um, and so he saw that as a call to come to worship, even in times of, uh, of uh, pestilence like this. Right. And, and I, I think a very, very wise, wise counsel on his part. And he, he wrote further about it in, uh, in the book, Our Program, which is, was the program of his political party. And he, he wrote about how the church should respond to, uh, to times of, of pestilence, so to speak, and, uh, and, and, and what kinds of measures should be taken. And I think there's a, there's a lot of wisdom in what he writes there as well. And of course, during that time, there is also a greater understanding between the church and the state yeah. that the state had a one kind of authority and the church had another kind of authority and that the state was not allowed to impinge on that authority of the church. Right. Um, which I think, especially in our times and especially in our nation, I, I think we're probably uh, um, more going in the direction of the state having authority over the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Because I know from examples also uh, that I've read about in the United States during the time of the Spanish flu, where churches were prevented from gathering uh, for a two or three week period. And that was, that was, that was, that was at that time, it was the two weeks to flatten the curve, which actually were two weeks to flatten the curve. So <laughs> uh, a, a very different world. And then at, at, at that two to three week point, the churches themselves stood up and said, no, we're getting back together. Because they knew the necessity of getting together for prayer, getting together and, and, and supporting one another, hearing God's word publicly uh, praying to God, repenting, uh, and, and rejoicing in what God gives to us together in, in, in unity. So that was, that was something very different in the time of the Spanish flu. Yeah, and I would say, especially during times of pandemic, 
um, it becomes even more important to gather together to spur one another onwards to love and good works because um, there's still a spiritual war that's happening even in times of uh, pandemic and virus and and spread of of viruses like Mm COVID-19. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and uh, as I was preparing for this episode, I was, I was uh, reading through the Belgian confession uh, and I was looking at uh, some of the articles that you had mentioned uh, to me uh, personally, uh, article 28, article 29 of the Belgian confession. Uh, And I'm I'm working from the Canadian reform version of the, of the Belgian of the confessions. And Nathan is working from the United reform churches uh, version uh, so there's some slight differences in wording, but they're the same confessions uh, and they have the same message. So, for example, uh, Article 28 a, uh, talks about everybody, everyone's duty to join the church. And it says, we believe since this holy assembly and congregation is the assembly of the redeemed and there's no salvation outside of it, that no one ought to withdraw from it, content to be by himself, no matter what his status or standing may be. But all and everyone are obliged to join it and unite with it, maintaining the unity of the church. And then it continues, they must submit themselves to its instruction and discipline, bend their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and serve the edification of the brothers and sisters according to the talents which God has given them as members of the same body. And, and this, this part particularly struck me, this, this last part of this opening paragraph of Article 28, that what members of the church, first of all, the church is called the Holy Assembly and Congregation, which speaks to gathering together. It speaks to uh, unity, not virtual unity, but it speaks to unity uh, in person. Embodied unity. Yeah, embodied unity, not uh, transhumanist virtual unity, <laughs> as I would refer to it. Uh, and, and also, so you have that embodied unity. But you also have that submission to instruction and discipline. And I think that's something that I also like to talk further is that the, the exercise of discipline in the church, uh, which has really been made very difficult under the restrictions of the, the past two years, but also to serve the edification of the brothers and sisters according to the talents which God has given them as members of the same body. So there's, there's, there are all these different aspects of life in the church that uh, that include corporate worship and that are centered on corporate worship, uh, not limited to it, uh, but which are are which have been uh, under attack for the past couple of years. So that's that's uh, Article Twenty Eight, uh, and I don't know if you ha- have any any thoughts on Article Twenty Eight in particular. Yeah, I thought I would just bring out something that's uh, towards the end of that article. Um, So there's another paragraph there that says, and to preserve this unity more effectively, it is the duty of all believers, according to God's word, to separate themselves from those who do not belong to the church in order to join this assembly wherever God has established it, even if civil authorities and royal decrees forbid and death and physical punishment result. Um, so there you see the Belgian Confession making a statement about the relationship between the office bearers of the church and the duties of the church and the duties of the civil authority. Um, and, and it brings up the task of the civil authority even before Belgic Confession Article 36, which is the general go-to statement on the duty of the civil authority. Right, right. Article 36, Article 36 is the Romans 13 of the Belgic Confession. So everybody goes right to Romans 13 to it when speaking about scripture and the relationship between church and state or between Christians and the state. Uh, and then everybody goes directly to article 36, I yep. think to, uh, to talk about that same issue when, when speaking about the confessions, but yep. there are, there are the, 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 the good point I think that's being made here is that we need to look more broadly than that as well within, within our confession. Yeah, and if you read uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 10, Jesus himself warns that there are going to be times when civil authorities do not approve of the message and the actions of Christians. Yeah, yeah, so. exactly, exactly. And, that's, uh, and that is uh, where we are uh, and have been finding ourselves in, in recent years. And so to, to continue on with uh, 
with the Belgian Confession, uh, Article 29 also it speaks about the marks of the true and the false church. That's the the heading in our version of the uh, the the Article 29 of the Belgian Confession. But it speaks also specifically, uh, more specifically about the marks of the Christian as well in this article. So it's really two parts. But what I wanted to, to focus on here is that what we have is the second paragraph. The true church is to be recognized by the following marks. It practices the pure preaching of the gospel. It maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It exercises church discipline for correcting and punishing sins. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it, and regarding Jesus Christ as the only head. Hereby, the true church can certainly be known, and no one has the right to separate from it. So can you speak a little bit to that aspect and that part of uh, Article 29 and how that has applied to us over the past couple of years and, and, and some thought, give, give, give us some thoughts on that. Yeah, so one of the one of the struggles with um, Zoom church, as as some might describe it, or live streaming church, is the idea is that you're still listening to a sermon. Now, one could argue that um, that an embodied form of preaching is when a minister or a shepherd of the flock is face to face with his people, and they're um, he's declaring the word of God to them face to face. And walking through life together with them. But that being said, there is still faithful preaching. Um, uh, there, there, there's still faithful preaching happening online and on Zoom. But now it gets a little bit more difficult when you get into the administration of the sacraments. Uh, so baptism cannot be done over Zoom or um, over live stream. Baptism is uh, the washing with water in the name of the triune God. And so there's uh, a very physical aspect to that. The same could be said of the Lord's Supper. Um, when you have dinner together with your family, you're not gonna all go into different rooms and have dinner together over live stream. What you're gonna do is you're gonna all gather together around one table and you're gonna um, partake of, of the meal. And so the Lord's Supper is a meal, a physical meal of physical bread and physical wine, which points to the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which washes away our sins, which uh, strengthens our faith. Um, and so there's a very physical and embodied aspect to the very act of coming together for communion. Uh, the discipline of the church uh, is also affected by the movement to virtual or online, um, it's much more difficult to maintain accountability. And uh, I guess we could refer to it as loving accountability between brothers and sisters in Christ to um, not just make sure that people aren't falling into sins and errors, but also to encourage them in whatever struggles they're facing, to encourage them maybe with, uh, with a mental health difficulty or something like that to come to them and to show them the love of Christ with open arms and to uh, to encourage them in the faith. And so um, I would say all three are affected, um, but especially uh, the sacraments and church discipline. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's what I was largely thinking of as well. The, yep. uh, the, the administration of the sacraments, as you said, is something that must be done pers personally in person an embodied way, uh, because that really is the nature of sacraments, something that you can taste and touch and smell and feel. So, so all of these, these uh, sensual aspects of the sacraments are a, very, a, a, a part of the very nature of what a sacrament is. And to, to, to think about a, like a, a virtual administration of the sacraments is a, is a contradiction in terms. Well, yeah. And, and simply um, so the, the main focus of the sacraments is on that uh, forgiveness of sins that we find in Christ. Um, but there's also that act, act, aspect of the Lord's supper that's described in first Corinthians 11, where we're also showing our unity together as a congregation. 
So being able to come to the Lord's table alongside a brother whom you may have sinned against at one point, he may have sinned against you, and yet those sins are forgiven and washed away by Jesus Christ. Yeah. And there's that that unity that's expressed in the physical act of coming to the Lord's table. Right, right. That, that's a beautiful, a beautiful, and it's a beautiful image, and it's a necessary image and participation uh, of what it means to be united in Christ and united to one another. Absolutely, absolutely. So that's, I think that's that's a really important aspect of all of this. That that these things simply cannot be done virtually. So, just just said to, to like I've never I, uh, we speak online. Right now we're speaking online, and uh, we know that online communication is inherently limited. And. It, it's been proven that when people have meetings and conversations online, what ends up happening is a kind of a Zoom fatigue because we really need to work much harder to communicate and to interpret body language and to interpret facial expressions. Just those, those very simple, basic things that we don't even consider, which I'd shows... Yeah, go ahead. I'd much rather be sitting at a table with you with coffee. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There, I mean, there's no doubt about it. This is, uh, th this is good because we're on opposite sides of the country. So obviously, it's a blessing that God has given us this opportunity that we can have this conversation. But it's, it's nothing like a personal embodied interaction. Exactly. Exactly. That, that, uh, that point, I think, is really important to emphasize as we move further and further into the, the metaverse as uh, as mark zuckerberg leads us into a virtual life so we 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 as as church need to seriously consider these issues and think about these issues and and know what we believe on these issues and why we stand for these things that's something that that uh, that i always emphasize and uh, i think it's it's really important for us but i want to i want to continue now and and to talk about the the office bearers in the church and the position of the office bearers in the church, the elders and the deacons and the pastor, uh, and, and the nature of their leadership. And that's one of the things that I read uh, that, that struck me that you had written about uh, in a post or a, a blog post. I'm not exactly sure. I don't remember anymore. But uh, about how the office bearers uh, rule and what their, what, their, yeah, what their responsibility, what their authority is in the church. So if you could if you could touch on that and speak to that point a little bit. Yeah, so in articles 31 and 32 it talks about the government of church of the church and the office bearers of the church. Actually article 32 would talk about their uh, the limitations on their authority within the church. But article 30 and article 31 describe what exactly their authority is. Um, this is author this is an authority that is distinct within scripture uh, from the authority of the, of the government, of the state. Um, you'll also see that the category, the Belgian Confession reflects that truth of scripture by setting a distinction between the two different authorities. Um, so uh, Article 31 here describes a little bit more of that we believe that ministers of the word of god elders and deacons ought to be chosen to their offices by a legitimate election of the church with prayer in the name of the lord and in good order as the word of god teaches uh continues a paragraph later as for the ministers of the word they all have the same power and authority no matter where they may be since all are servants of jesus christ the only universal bishop and the only head of the church and so you see that um as a constant theme throughout the belgian confession of faith that jesus christ is the only head of the church he institutes elders and deacons who are directly accountable to him and he directs them over spiritual matters within the church over the life of the church over the discipline of, of the church the elders and the minister and the deacons of the church are given especially the elders of the church are given the keys of the kingdom of heaven the keys of the kingdom of heaven are not given to the state. So um, our Heidelberg Catechism, uh, Lord's Day 31, describes the keys of the kingdom of heaven as being preaching and church discipline. And so the office bearers of the church hold uh, unique authority in the church 
and they're directly accountable to Jesus Christ before they're accountable to any civil government. Of course, there is a time where they do have to work with the civil government, especially in matters of crime. Um, but uh, they, the elders of the church are responsible for the worship of the church, not, not the civil authority. Right. So that we're, we're, we're looking at basically two different spheres or areas of authority. And, yep. and in, in the one area, in the, it's specifically in the area of church, in the area of the worship of the church, it is the elders who have the ultimate authority, which has been entrusted to them directly by the king with a capital K, who's King Jesus. Yep. So that, that's, that's a, a, a central aspect to how we need to think about this, the, the entire situation. The, the centrality of the office bearers and, and the authority of the office bearers uh, in relation to uh, the church and the state and the authority of the state. Now, I'm going to skip over a couple of articles here, and we're going to go to Article 36. So if you can give me some thoughts and, uh, and, some, uh, and speak a little bit to Article 36, which is obviously the uh, the central article uh, on the civil government in the Belgian Confession. Yeah, yeah. So Article Thirty Six begins with with basic truths or principles from Romans thirteen or First Peter two in the middle of the passage. It talks about submission to the government, uh, submission to the authority. Um, the civil authority holds a very important role in the world in order to uh, establish laws and policies so that human lawlessness can be restrained and so that everything can be conducted in good order among human beings. So the government is there in order to establish an order within society and that order begins by punishing what is evil and rewarding what is good as we see described in Romans chapter 13. Right. Of course, Romans chapter 13, as article 36, shows that there's only one person with absolute authority, and that is God. So our good God has ordained kings, priests, and civil officers. In the 21st century, we could say our good God has ordained prime ministers, members of parliament, um, police officers, mm -hmm. uh, in order to um, form this order within society. Uh, their relationship to the church is described in this article. Um, I believe that the Canadian Reformed version of Article 36 translates it this way. Their task of restraining and sustaining is not limited to the public order, but includes the protection of the church and its ministry. Or as we see here in, uh, in the URC version, the civil rulers have the task subject to God's law of removing every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and to every aspect of divine worship. And so what's interesting is what you'll hear a lot in the 21st century, especially among many modern evangelicals, is so long as the government is not um, stopping the preaching of the gospel, um, they're doing their task. But actually what's laid out here is that they must also protect every aspect of divine worship. Um, so they must not step into our worship as a church. Our worship as a church is free from the constraints of the state. So, so once again, it, as we were talking about you know, positive and negative uh, commands, uh, things that we must do, things that we must not do, things that are permitted, things that are not permitted. Once again, it's not just a, a negative that, the, that the, the state is not to interfere in the working of the church or in the worship of the church, but there's the positive that the state is to protect the church and its ministry. So it's uh, uh, that positive. That's a very important point. It's a very good point to, to protect the church. So that, that is an important part of the state's role and what, they should, what they, they, the state should be doing. But I think you see that also in the criminal code of Canada, that um, at least from our Christian past, there's still protections in place for worship, that worship and <clears throat> ministers of the word are protected from interruption by those who would uh, enter into a worship service and interrupt it or interrupt a minister on his way to a worship service. Um, in that way, our 
Canadian criminal code actually reflects some of the truths that we find here in the Belgian Confession of Faith. Yes, yes. And, and we've seen that in action over the past couple of years in, in various churches where police officers have come to the church to check on whether the church is, is upholding uh, the various decrees and they have not entered into the church during the worship service. Uh, and I've had this experience when I was leading worship services in, in, uh, in one church in particular, where the police officer came to the church and one of the elders would go out to meet the police officer outside of the church because he would not enter during the worship service. So that's, a, that's, a, that's an important restriction on the, uh, the state's role and the state's ability to uh, mess around with what's going on in a worship service. Now, sadly, we've also seen in many other occasions where that, that restriction has not been uh, followed. Up here in Canada, also in Australia recently, it's happened uh, where uh, police officers have entered into, in, in the case of Australia, uh, into a Roman Catholic mass while that was going on, which is, yeah. a, which is a very definite overstepping of the bounds of the authority that they've been given. Yeah, so yeah, it's an overstepping of the bounds within Canadian law, but it's also an overstepping of the bounds within God's law. Exactly, exactly. So, so here's, where the, here's where the two come together. Yeah. Because the law must be based on God's law to be a, to be a just law. So that what, I, what I wanted to emphasize here uh, in, in Article 36 uh, was, is in the first part of Article 36, which Nathan already read, our gracious God has ordained kings and princes and civil officers. He wants the world to be governed by laws and statutes in order that the law, lawlessness of men be restrained and that everything be conducted among them in good order. And I would argue that what we've seen recently, and especially what we saw yesterday, with the invoking of the Emergencies Act by Prime Minister Trudeau, is an overturning of what our confession says about what the kings, princes, and civil officers should be doing. Because God wants the world to be governed by laws and statutes. And we have laws and statutes in Canada. And those laws and statutes are our Canadian Constitution and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And the, right now, I would argue that it is our government, our federal government in particular, that is showing a certain lawlessness uh, and that that law lawlessness needs to be and must be restrained because they are choosing not to allow our nation to be governed by laws and statutes, the laws and statutes of our land. And that's how serious and that's how important this issue is. Yeah, so one, one thing that, um, especially as I've reflected on this whole crisis, I've, I've reflected on how the gospel transforms uh, the use of authority in this world. And so you see, especially in the Western world, with the influence of uh, Christianity for almost uh, at least 1,500 years um, in, in parts of the Western world like Europe, um, but especially since the time of the Reformation, you see that um, originally uh, what kept on being emphasized again and again, especially by guys like uh, Beza, by guys like uh, Calvin, is that there's a law that's above the king. And this has been developed uh, much more than at the time of Calvin. So, for example, I believe it's Samuel Rutherford who wrote Lex Rex, The Law and the King. Right. Um, Pastor Tim also referred to Lex Rex last week. That's right. Yeah. So the king is under the law. The king is accountable to God, as we see in Romans 13 as well, that he is accountable to God. And it's God ultimately who defines good and evil, not the king. Um, and so this, this has been a very important development in the Western world as the gospels had its influence is that constitutions have been developed and um, civil authorities have had to submit themselves to a higher standard rather than saying, no, we've got absolute authority. Uh, we don't have to submit to any standard above ourselves. Exactly, exactly. So ultimately, uh, and I, I find the wording of this particularly, uh, particularly well done, that 
he wants the world to be governed by, and it doesn't say governed by men or governed by people, uh, or even by righteous men or righteous people, to be governed by laws and statutes. And I think there's a really important distinction that's being made here, and uh, and where the authority lies, a law that reflects and and is is based on God's law. Absolutely. So that's a, a really important point. But I think uh, uh, we're, we're starting to run out of time here. We haven't even gotten to our third point. Uh, that, and, and I want to, I really want to talk about this third point, because this is where the rubber hits the road. So we've talked about uh, these, the, the restrictions on life in general, we've talked about the restrictions on worship. But now, uh, as we've seen, and, and as I showed that video clip earlier, uh, we have the trucker convoy, we have the various local convoys that have been happening around Canada. Uh, there has been civil disobedience, there has been peaceful protest. And, and thankfully, uh, it has been, by and large, a peaceful protest, and people have shown a very good spirit, I think, and uh, uh, you may not hear it in the rhetoric of the politicians. But on the ground, for those, those people who have their boots on the ground, they've shown that there has been a, uh, a very peace, peaceful and peaceable spirit. As the, the, I, I just saw this morning a, a video of the, uh, the guys in Coots, Alberta, leaving the, leaving the protest and the interaction that they had with the police officers. It was amazing. And if you haven't had a chance to check that out, check that out, because it's pretty special. Uh, but it but it shows you that the nature of the protests that have been happening. So, the, but the question is, so what do we do about all this? So we say that okay, well, the government shouldn't be uh, uh, really uh, getting involved in the in the government of our worship services. That's the responsibility of the the office bearers of the church. That they shouldn't be uh, they should be promoting worship, especially in a time of a, a supposed crisis. But there should be nothing more that, than we should want to do than gather together for worship uh, and, and for prayer, for public prayer. Uh, so, but, but what do we do as church? What is our responsibility? Do we have to obey these injunctions? Simple question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so as the church, um, uh, I guess the best way to say it as the church is we have to remain committed to ministering to souls to, and by ministering to souls by that, I mean, what the Belgian confession lays out here, which is preaching the gospel administering the sacraments of Lord's supper and baptism, and also continuing with the discipline of the church and not forsaking those things. Um, I believe it was uh, Dr. Joe boot who pointed out that, um, while the Canadian uh, the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms has a notwithstanding clause, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 does not have a notwithstanding clause. We, we continue with the work of the church, um, both in season and out of season. That work has to continue for the, for the sake of the souls of our members, but also uh, unbelievers who are, who are watching. Yeah. So that's, that's the, uh, the, the positive continuation of the ministry of the church even though the authorities might rail against it yeah absolutely absolutely and 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 so that's that's about the decrees and the and the the mandates and all whatever other word that we can use but what about what about uh, peaceful protest we've seen uh christians gathering uh and i have i have supported those protests and i've spoken out in favor of those protests and i've participated uh locally uh, for the last three Saturdays, I've been participating in the in the local convoys, the support convoys, uh, with uh, with the family. Uh, so obviously, I believe that in good conscience, I can do that. And uh, what about that? Can you speak to that? Yeah. So, um, and, and I think there's a distinction between the duty of the church and the duty of individual Christians. Um, I, I don't think that there's necessarily a duty for Christians to be joining those protests. But within Christian, within principles of Christian liberty, and especially Christians who are conscience bound by by seeing where the direction of our society is going, I think Christians, um, in many ways, should be encouraged to join those protests, to join those protests in respectful and godly ways, and to um, yeah, be a salt and a salt and a light in the middle of those protests, pointing to to God pointing to uh, 
um, the work that he's doing through his church. Um, I think we can bring all of those things to those protests and, and share the love of Christ. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we saw that, we saw that in the video that I played earlier and, and this is, it, it's been a, a great opportunity and also for, as a, as a family, it's been a great opportunity because, because our kids have seen some of the signs, which are rude, uh, which are disrespectful, which don't show respect to our prime minister or to those who are in authority over us, and which use foul language. Uh, thankfully, they're not, uh, they're not widespread, but they are there. So it's been a, an opportunity to teach as well and to teach our children about, uh, about the nature of respect and, and also about what, what our society has come to. And I said this to somebody last night, basically that these, these things like the chance that, that began in, in, uh, in football stadiums in the United States, uh, something that would never have been heard, you know, even, even 20 years ago, I think, uh, or, or 40 years ago on a, such a widespread level by average people. Um, it, it's a sign that our, our culture is circling the drain, but at the same time, we need to within that, uh, or we have the opera, no, we need to, but no, we have the opportunity to within that context to, as, as you said, to let the light of the gospel shine. And, uh, and, and I think we should take advantage, take full advantage of that as many have to very good yeah. effect. Yeah. And protesting is very much a, a fair, uh, legal avenue to, to take in order to, uh, bring our questions to the authorities, especially when they haven't heard our emails or phone calls, our one-on-one -on -one conversations, um, joining protests as Christians is a way of saying, no, we as Christians see something, um, dark, maybe even evil happening in this world. And we want to, uh, show what true biblical righteousness and godliness is. Right. But once again, I'm going to, I'm going to just play the devil's advocate and I'm going to throw something at you that I've, I've heard as well, but the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter never encouraged Christians to engage in protest. Yeah. So I would, I would argue from the apostle, especially the apostle Paul, his own example was to preached Christ boldly and faithfully wherever he went, even at the threat of being stoned and beaten and thrown in jail and tossed out of town. Um, Peter, he doesn't encourage people to join protests, but what he does encourage people, he says, well, first of all, live as people who are free. That's, uh, I believe it's 1 Peter 2, verse 16 or 17. So live as people who are free. And then he commands Christians to live in a godly way, so that when the world slanders them as evildoers, they'll be put to shame. So I think there's a way of going to a protest in a, in a godly and good way, so that when the world slanders Christians as evildoers, they'll be put to shame because they yeah. see the, the caring spirit of Christians, their love for their neighbor, their love for God, and their desire to do what's right. Very well put. Very well put. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly uh, with that response. And I, I, I think that's, uh, yeah, it's a, it, it's a positive aspect of the things that we can be doing. Now, there may be some people who uh, participate in protests and public protests. There may be others who focus more specifically on letter writing campaigns or some other kind of campaign. Uh, but I do believe that we do have a responsibility as individuals within our country to fight for freedom because freedom is not optional and freedom is something that is based in our being created in God's image as his representatives over creation. And that's, that's what he wants us to be. And, and we owe it in love to those who are in places of authority to remind them again and again, that there is a higher law and that, well, essentially to preach the gospel to those in places of authority exactly exactly and speak and, and speaking of the people that we owe it to we also owe, owe it to those who are oppressed those who are marginalized those who are on the fringes of society to speak up in their on their behalf as well and not just for freedom of worship but for freedom generally uh the old testament uh, and, and and the new james speaks about this what is pure religion uh, and, and the Old Testament speaks about the orphan and the widow and the sojourner uh, and how, that, the, how those three groups of people are treated is the mark 
of faithfulness in a community. Uh, and so, you know, while, while there are, are many people uh, on the upper echelons of society who have been able to work from home and use their Zoom and have their meals delivered to them and, and, uh, and been very unaffected in many ways by the current, uh, the current situation, there are many others who have lost their jobs and, and uh, because of, uh, of, of what I call a, a encroaching medical tyranny. Uh, have lost their positions, whether it be they health professionals uh, or uh, teachers or people in, in all walks of life uh, and have had their travel restricted, have been un unable to visit loved ones. Uh, all of these things, it, it, we have the duty to speak up in love on behalf of those people who are uh, seriously affected by these things. Yeah, and I think Proverbs 30 I think it's Proverbs 30 or 31. Uh, anyway, verses one to nine, where Lemuel's mother is speaking to him. She says, the task of a kingly man is to speak up for those who are destitute, for those who are mute, for those who are, are not able to speak up for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And we need to, we need to take that calling very seriously indeed. Yeah. There's a lot of talk in the world about social justice. Yes. And I think a lot of that talk is, is very misguided. Uh, and uh, and goes in a very very bad direction, but there is something to be said for, uh, and obviously Scripture speaks about it, uh, justice for the poor, for the oppressed, for the marginalized, and speaking up for them as well. Yeah, treating treating people with equity, and that's the command to every single believer. Exactly, exactly. All right. So, do you have any any closing comments? Anything that you'd like to offer? Something that we haven't touched on. Yeah, so I, I, I think especially with this uh, uh, discussion of protesting and this discussion of worship, I would say um, my greatest longing and desire is to see every Christian, everyone across our nation piling into churches and calling upon the name of the Lord again and uh, calling upon his name in prayer and song, uh, listening to God's word. Um, uh, what, what my desire and prayer is to see through this time is that there's a growing hunger and thirsting after the word of God and yes. Jesus Christ. Right. The most, the most important uh, kind of activity that we can take yes. in this, uh, in this uh, uh, current situation. And is, then every, is, oh, sorry. Is, is, is to worship. Yes. Yeah. And everything, everything else flows from worship. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's very well said. Good. Well, thank you. Thanks, Nathan, for being here with me. Yeah, thank you for uh, having me on. Yeah, it's been very nice. And I think, uh, I think it's been uh, a fruitful discussion as we've gone through some of these issues in the in the light of the Reformed Confessions. And uh, it was, uh, it was a blessing to have you with us. And uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Definitely. All right. All right. Well, thanks everyone for watching and uh, for listening. For those of you who are listening, uh, if you uh, found this helpful, and I, I certainly hope that you have, I've certainly found it uh, to be a, a stimulating discussion. If you found this helpful, please do uh, like and share the podcast on Rumble or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you're listening to podcasts, Spotify, uh, which, uh, which uh, still hasn't kicked me off. So Neil Young hasn't complained about me yet. So that's, uh, that's good. We're still good to go on Spotify. Also on Rumble, the Rumble channel. Now Rumble also has not offered me $100 million as they offered Joe Rogan, but we're still on Rumble and we're still happy to be there. So uh, please do like and share and pass it on. Uh, our goal is to equip God's people, as always, to stand firm and to take action in, in the words of Daniel 11, verse 32. And that's what we need to do. And we can give thanks to God in the current situation that he has given us this opportunity. And it's a very, very precious opportunity that he's given to us to do these things and to do these things joyfully, uh, to uh, bring God's word to bear in every aspect of life and to do that to his glory and to stand firm and to take action with that goal in mind. So until next time, may God bless you and may God help us all to stand firm and to take action.